Welcome to Encompass Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us today. To share your story of what God has been doing in you and through you, take a moment to email us at amen at encompass.org.au. Enjoy today's message. Please, you may be seated. Thank you. I'm going to give you that back because that doesn't help me a lot. There you go. Thank you. Well, I'm not going to waste one minute of time telling you funny stories simply because we want to make the most of the time we have. I want to talk to you about discipleship in Babylon because that's one of the challenges facing us as we raise disciples in the culture in which we currently live. There is tremendous power in culture because we become what we are one day at a time. Uh, You make decisions and uh, they can alter the direction of your life, but you don't really change other than what you do day after day after day. It changes the way your brain works. It changes the kind of person you are. We are moulded one day at a time. And as a result, the culture in which we live, which is the pressure to push us to do life in a certain way, has a tremendous impact on framing who we become in the future. Reality is that um, Western culture has undergone tremendous changes in my lifetime. Now, I grew up in Melbourne. I've never lived anywhere else other than in Melbourne. And Melbourne is a different city than it was when I was a child. You know, if you go back uh, to the beginning or the founding of Melbourne in the first uh, 50 to 100 years, 75% of all Melbournians would be in church on a Sunday at the beginning of the 1900s. I remember a time, even in my childhood, where shops were all closed on Sunday because Sunday was a day of rest and worship. You wouldn't imagine having AFL on a Sunday, let alone on Good Friday. The reality was in Melbourne, you couldn't hire a tennis court on a Sunday because you weren't supposed to be playing tennis on a Sunday. It was viewed as kind of the Christian Sabbath. As far as public speech was concerned, There was a dignity and a restraint in the way in which people publicly used their mouth, the things that they would allow to come out of their mouth. In the early days of uh, television in uh, in Melbourne, you couldn't imagine someone swearing on the TV. Even in the newscasts, they wouldn't even use the word adultery in the news because they didn't want children hearing a word like adultery. You could watch TV today, you could hear words you wouldn't have heard on a golf course when I was a young man. And I grew up in that environment. Swearing used to be illegal in this city. I grew up in an environment where pornography was non-existent. I never saw a nude photograph till I was 18 years old. I was working in a quarry. They had one of those lunch shacks at the bottom of the quarry and someone put a nude photo up on the wall. I'd never seen that. Today, the average 10-year-old has seen the kind of pornography you couldn't have imagined existed on his little mobile phone, sharing it in the school bus on the way to school. Um, It's a different world in which we live. I grew up in an environment where marriage was profoundly honoured in our culture and I didn't know any friends that had been divorced. I didn't know any families where divorce existed and I didn't say that if that's been your experience to either embarrass you or make you feel inadequate. It was just a different world 
when I was a child. Culture used to play a significant role in cultivating faith in this city. It used to cultivate the concept of worship and family stability and the respect for the Bible was quite profound in my youth. Um, I still remember vacation Bible schools being run all over this city. I still remember school outreaches and I still remember attending outreaches in primary school at the local Baptist church where hundreds of the local kids would come and have an encounter. I still remember waking up on a Sunday morning to the sound of the Salvation Army band playing hymns on the street corner where I lived. How many people heard the Salvation Army band on your street corner last week? Yeah, nobody heard that. See, this doesn't happen anymore. We live in a profoundly different environment. That's a distant memory for me. And for some of you sitting here, that's a totally non-existent memory. You've just never lived in a city like that. The reality is that our culture has profoundly changed. And the question becomes... How do we disciple people in an increasingly hostile cultural environment, which is what Australia has become, especially over the last decade or so? Well, it's important to see how culture worked in the past. Israel, under Moses, was a theocracy. Australia is not a Christian country. Australia is a democracy, and democracies are not Christian. Theocracy is where God rules. Democracy is where 51% of the people rule. And that means Australia can't be a Christian country. It can only be a country that's been influenced by Christianity and has lots of Christians in it. And as a result, what we do, the way we think and the way we grow has a profound influence on our culture because we have a way of influencing it in ways that other cultures do not. Now, under Moses, God designed a theocracy. God ruled, and as a result, the culture of Israel was designed to disciple people. Everything about the culture was framed around God's thoughts. Now, we still have memories of that in Australia. You still have Christmas Day. They haven't banned it yet. They still have Easter Sunday. They haven't banned it yet. They want to minimize it. They'll talk more about Eid, and they'll talk more about Ramadan now than they will talk about Easter or Christmas. Um, our culture is profoundly changing. But under Moses, God established a culture that would kind of be like a discipleship experience. The tabernacle first, the temple later under David, under Solomon, where every single element of how the temple worked was a, was a, a reminder of how God thinks. Then there was the law, the entire country, under the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament law. The priesthood, the way they lived, the way they dressed, the way they were set apart, the sacrifices, the five offerings, the bird offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, every offering designed to help people understand how God thinks. And then the feasts. The entire year was structured around three feasts. Passover, followed 50 days later by Pentecost, remembering that they were married to God, remembering that God had embraced them and taken them as a bride at Sinai, and then the Feast of Weeks and the Great Day of Atonement, were, that, that's the way the entire culture functioned. Well, what do we learn from having an environment where the entire culture is designed to disciple people? And the answer is, it plays a part, but it's not enough. And thank God for that. 
We are not bound by culture. It can be helpful to us. But something more has to happen inside a human heart than to simply put them in a cultural environment. It does not guarantee that people will have faith, that they'll love God, that they'll have obedience and holiness and righteousness and any idea of what justice actually means because they come deeper than culture. This is something that has to happen inside the heart and something has to happen in every individual heart for the kingdom of heaven to be a lived experience. Culture has a conditioning role, but it's only the spirit that actually transforms and you watch that unfold in the life of Israel. Now, a little history lesson. Under King David, Jerusalem became the capital city of God's plan for the redemption of the entire world, and we're about a thousand years before Jesus. Then following King David was King Solomon, and King Solomon was the cherry on the top of the cake. He extended the kingdom to its, the fullness of its borders, and uh, the, Israel was the, was the greatest nation on the face of the earth for one generation under the life of David and then Solomon. Uh, Solomon began well. He established the temple in Jerusalem, and it was magnificent. But as he aged, he began to drift. The next generation divided the kingdom. His sons behaved badly. The next generation split the kingdom into two parts. You had the northern ten tribes, and you had Benjamin and Judah around the city of Jerusalem, and over the next years, uh, Israel, the ten northern tribes, became known as Israel and Jerusalem became known as Judah. Um, those ten northern tribes who were supposed to be part of the kingdom of God became a total embarrassment to God. And under the prophet Isaiah, who spoke about 700 BC, he said this to Israel, the name of God is blasphemed because of you. It's not good when God's people become an embarrassment to God and people begin to blaspheme God and his kingdom because of the way his people behave. That's not a good thing. In Israel, lots of prophets ended up dead. They were persecuted to death. And then in 722, what God had warned through the mouth of Moses, that if you will not walk with me, I will divorce you. Now, God hates divorce, but even God could only take so much. And then by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah, he said to the 10 northern tribes, I give you a certificate of divorce and I am sending you away. And the Assyrians prosecuted that divorce in 722 B.C., Assyria uh, conquered and subjugated the 10 northern tribes. They no longer exist. They're gone. They were never restored. They're out. They're finished. They're gone. All that was left of Israel was Judah around the city of Jerusalem. Now, you'd think if you were part of Judah, you'd take that to heart. Uh, you'd say, you know, we ought to really walk with God and we really need to recognize that it matters to God that we don't embarrass him. It matters to God that we reveal the goodness of his word and of his name. But sadly, they didn't do a lot better. They had some godly kings. They had ungodly kings. Culture 
is not enough. Something has to happen in here. And if it doesn't happen in here, culture won't do it for you. So sadly, a hundred years later, 606 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes from Babylon and begins the subjugation of Judah. In 598, he returned for a further subjugation of Judah. And in 587, he returned to Jerusalem and wiped the floor, burned the temple to the ground, destroyed the entire city. David's ancient residence and all of the great houses in Jerusalem were burned to the ground. And into captivity went the people who were supposed to be representatives of the kingdom of heaven. One of the saddest things is that God gave them plenty of opportunity. He sent them prophets, one after another, to deliver to them prophetic warnings. Their response was a foolish response to every one of the prophets who warned them that God will fulfill his word to Moses. If we do not follow, we don't walk out our calling, he will scatter us to the nations. They responded by saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jerusalem is infallible because it has the temple of the Lord. He would never allow Jerusalem to fall. That's what you think. God is more concerned about the holiness of his name and the fulfillment of his great purposes for the whole earth. And he will always do what he said he would do. God will always fulfill his word and so off into captivity goes a group of the brightest and best teenagers of the royal house of Judah they were taken by Nebuchadnezzar from Jerusalem to Babylon with this view in mind to train them up in the language and the culture of Babylon to totally reorient their worldview to Babylonian thinking Babylonian religion and Babylonian ways to enhance the administration of the Babylonian kingdom. They were there to carry on the great work of Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel is one of them. Daniel. I'm going to talk to you today about discipleship in Babylon because that's where we see one of the greatest examples of discipleship the world has ever seen. A little cluster of heroic young teenagers demonstrated that you can create the most profoundly effective disciples even when the culture is totally opposed to them as long as you understand what it takes to raise disciples in a contradictory environment. Whether you have the courage for it, the will, the faith, the persistence, you can raise the greatest disciples. In fact, I think in many ways you raise better disciples in the midst of contradiction because every decision you make has to be a deliberate one. One of the great dangers of being raised in a Christian environment is that because you fit in with the culture, you feel like that you're part of the kingdom. Jesus discovered you could have Israelites that, that, that were simply not part of Israel. Oh, they fit into the culture, but they had nothing of the kingdom of heaven in here. And one of the dangers of culture is that as long as you turn up and you're ticking the boxes, you feel like you're really in this thing. When the culture is against you, you know you've got to make very deliberate decisions because people don't applaud you. You don't get applauded any longer for coming to church. You don't get applauded any longer for believing the Bible. In fact, you're viewed as part of the problem. 
you're part of the problem. If we could just get the Bible out of here, we could just get this religious mindset out of here, oh, this would be an amazing nation. In that environment, you have to be very deliberate about the kind of disciples that you are creating. Now, what's remarkable about these young exiles is that they are about to be removed into a totally contradictory culture and they will never see Jerusalem again for the rest of their lives. It's probable that Daniel was a teenager when he was taken. It is thought that he lived to about the age of 90. He would never see his homeland again. He would never again experience a Passover in Jerusalem or a Pentecost, or a Feast of Weeks, or a Great Day of Atonement. The culture was gone. He would live in Babylon for the rest of his life, and he would demonstrate what it takes to be a disciple in that environment. Yeah. One of the things about, uh, that was on his side, of course, that he was raised and born in the, in the years of Josiah, and Jos- the years of King Josiah in Jerusalem, before it all went downhill, was a time of revival. He was marked by revival and it never left him. And it is my hope and prayer that I too will get to do some ministry in a time of, res- of revival here in Australia. Australia needs revival. Australia is increasingly ripe for revival because when it comes, it'll be like a shock to the system and it'll be an awakening from the dead for many Melbournians who have become just so lost in the materialistic and atheistic mindset of my generation. Let me ask you this question. What are the empowering elements of a resilient disciple? What are the empowering elements? What is it that makes for a a life that, that flourishes under pressure? Well, there's a lot of them. I'm going to share with you three this morning. If I was here for longer, I'd do a whole series on it. Because the life of Daniel is one of the most, it's one of the most exciting books in the Bible. I love the book of Daniel and one day I'm going to go spend a whole, I'm going to spend a week with Daniel and say, I want to hear the whole story, mate. I want to hear the story. Tell me, tell me about Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the first element of a great disciple. He understands that there's a distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the culture in which he's living. Not every Australian, not even every Christian has picked that up yet. Um, There's a great difference between a Christian life and a moral life. A moral life does what's right because it's the way the community thinks it'll work out best for all of us. That's a moral life. But a Christian life is one that says, God, what would you have from me? And whether it works for the people around me or it doesn't work for even for me, Lord, what you say comes first. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. It's a life lived with a theology of what pleases God and what breaks his heart. And in that light, you make your choices. The average Australian thinks that there's, there's a, it's more moral right now to separate your garbage into tins and plastics and do some really good recycling then it is that that's a more moral stance than it is to avoid committing adultery or lying or stealing. Yeah. No, if you, if you could just if you could just recycle, the, that's that's really more. Oh, well done. <laughs> committing adultery, oh well, that's bad luck. You know, everyone has a sex life. Go for it. Um, God sees things a little differently. Yeah. And in this light, Daniel demonstrates what it takes. Let me just read you a couple of verses from Daniel chapter one.
Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into Hick the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. They were about to go to Babylonian University. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he named Belshazzar, Belteshazzar. In other words, he gave him the name of a demon. Thank you very much. To Hananiah, Shadrach, another demon. To Mishael, Meshach, another demon. And to Azariah, Abednego, another demon. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Right off the back, he's got decisions to make. What do you do when your culture contradicts? The answer is you create an alternative. You very deliberately create an alternative. Took a lot of skill, and we don't have time to unpack all of this. But because of the skill with which David exercised, with which Daniel exercised this first choice that he had to make, the end of chapter one says this: "And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus." That's another seventy years down the track. All seventy years of captivity, Daniel will be in this environment. The way he handled this first challenge is what set him up in the presence of God to be blessed and to flourish in this contradictory environment. What did he do? The first thing he did was he realized some things about this culture I can't change. They call me Belteshazzar. I could say I refuse to be called Belteshazzar. My name is Daniel and I'll die. He said, well, okay, call me whatever you like. Uh, Shakespeare put it this way, a rose by any other name will still smell sweet. So you can call me Belteshazzar, I know who I am, and that's Daniel. Sometimes you will be named by your culture for things that don't belong to you. You've got to know who you really are, and you've got to be prepared not to have to fight over everything. But some things are life and death. And on this situation, he says, I will not defile myself with your uh, demon worship. You can call me by a demon, I'll worship God. I'll take that name into God's presence and I will humble it and I'll worship in his presence knowing who I really am. But what I won't do is honour your demons. I just won't honour them. First thing he did in this environment was to appreciate that there was going to have to be a measure of compromise but some things he couldn't compromise. And one of the things we're struggling with right now as a church is there are some things that we are now already faced with that are illegal. Um, that, that will break. Wait till hate speech includes saying that Jesus Christ is the only way. It's only a matter of time before in a culture that keeps heading in this direction, it will be hate speech to say Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. That's terrible. You can't say that. Well, sorry. But that's, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. Sorry, that's not up for grabs. The first issue is to recognize that some things in my culture are an absolute test of who I am. And in this environment, 
he realises that if I can't, if I've got to live in this culture, I'm going to create my own. You need to recognise the power and the importance of the value of church culture. One of the first things about Daniel is that he's not there alone. He has four faithful friends around him. Do you have friends? Are you part of a small group? Are you part of a worshipping community? Or do you simply come and go? Um, welcome too, by the way, to Craigie Byrne, who are watching us online. And sorry, we, we can't be out there with you today, but praise God that you're online. But as Lois said before, as Pastor Lois said before, um, don't, don't stay online. You've got to frame cultures. And cultures are not just framed on Zoom or on Skype. They're framed by being in the same room as one another and touching one another's life. And uh, you need to appreciate the power of a church culture in the midst of a contradictory culture. God's given you a faithful, true Christian church to be part of. Be part of it. Don't simply be distant from it because this culture will gobble you if it gets the chance. Our future are the Word and the Spirit. And David had, uh, Daniel had his friends. And his small group was totally solid. He, had, he was friends with the prophet Ezekiel. He was also friends with the prophet Isaiah. Ezekiel also did his time in uh, Babylon, in the whole Persian Empire later on. Jeremiah, the friends you develop are a culture, and the church you attend is a culture. What you hear and the values you affirm are profoundly important. One of the most important parts about regularly being in the house of God is that your life has a rudder and the culture is wanting to turn the wheel on your rudder in all kinds of directions. And the fact is you come to church every Sunday and most of it you just don't remember. But for the time you were in here, you realigned your rudder. And when you're steering a ship, it's not like steering a car. When you're steering a car, you've got to make adjustments about every five or ten meters, or else you start crossing the white line, and before you know it, you're in trouble. When you're piloting a ship, you don't have to do it every five or ten meters, but you can't leave the rudder set wrongly for 24 hours, or on that, on that angle, you'll be a mile off course, and if you keep it up for a week, you'll be, you'll be seven miles off course, and if you keep it up forever, you'll end up somewhere you never intended to go. One of the great opportunities of being in the culture of a local church and worshipping is that you realign the rudder of your life now. Don't wait three months down the track or turn up in four weeks because in four weeks it is possible for you to really begin to track on a direction that is damaging to you and your soul. Adjust the rudder of your soul on a daily basis. As a, journey, as, a, as a couple, Helen and I have our own culture. Marriage is a culture. For that reason, it is vital to consider who you marry. Increasingly, I watch Christians in various churches not care about who they marry, whether, they believe, whether the person they're marrying is a believer or unbeliever. Your, your marriage is a culture. One of the reasons I'm still here in ministry is because I'm married to an extraordinary woman. I fear God and I fear my wife. I live in the fear of Helen. 
She woke this morning, she said, Al, I was in prayer last night, in, in the night, and it was like heaven opened. And I prayed for you, and I prayed for my kids, and it was, she said, I've never had an experience like this. It just seemed like heaven was open, heaven was saying, ask anything you want. So I asked for you, I said, good on you, sweetheart. That's why I st- I'm still here. I'm, I'm, my rudder's aligned, partly, because um, I have a wife who is a believer. And together we attended a church. Now, for the first years of our life, we attended a good Bible-believing Lutheran church. And then God asked us to move to a different congregation. I moved to a Pentecostal church. And one of the things that was so important about making that move was that while I was in a good Bible-believing church, and I love my Lutheran background, I'm appreciative for it, I'd never heard of tithing in that church environment. And it's become one of the greatest keys in my life. If I'd stayed where I was, I would never have heard that. I'd never heard about fasting and prayer in that environment. We just didn't do that as Lutherans because we were afraid of works. We were afraid that we wanted to be justified by faith, so we weren't going to do anything, (laughs) which isn't good theology. I'd never heard of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and what a difference that made from particularly my daughter because she got baptized in the Holy Spirit when she was seven. She's just lived with this rampant faith all her life. It matters the church you show up in weekend after weekend because we're raising disciples in a contradictory environment. Then, of course, I grew up in a family of faith. It's an amazing thing to wake up every day to have a father who loves his wife, uh, who planted in me the thought that divorce is not even, it can't even enter my thinking. I mean, murder has got into it a few times, but never divorce. <laughs> Because I got raised in a home where the fam- my father's and my mother's marriage was a cultural experience for me. I was never looking for just a girlfriend. I was looking for a wife because of my father. And my father took me to church. My father trained me. I, I drove past all my mates playing in the local baseball league on a Sunday morning. And I still remember turning right up Belmore Road and we were passing on McClay Park and they all would be in there playing. I'm on my way to church. And one day I said to my dad, I don't think I want to go to church, dad. And my father said, son, we're Christians. We worship. I have never forgotten it. He said that to me when I was 14. I was living with a man who had put a mark in the ground and he helped establish the cultural commitment to worship. It's part of my life. It's not up for grabs. It has me for a lifetime. I want to tell you that a marriage founded in a common faith and common goals and common values is one of the most profoundly significant cultural issues that can help your family to make it in this challenging time. Then, of course, the value of a personal culture. You see, Babylon produced the scribes and the Pharisees. By the way, Babylon, it was Babylon that produced the synagogue. Synagogues did not exist in Israel till after the Babylonian captivity. And they said, you know what, we better form into small groups. We can't afford to have people just not turning up for communion of saints and sharing the word and listening uh, to the word of God. We need to, and the synagogues were established as a result of the Babylonian captivity. Learn from the past. The scribes and the Pharisees were the result too of the Babylonian captivity. Because they said, you know how we got into this trouble? Do you know why our city was destroyed and why we spent 70 years in captivity? Because we heard the word of God, but we didn't do it. He said, you know what? We need to hear and do. And out of that came the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, they, it didn't, 500 years, 400 years down the track, they had got weird. But it started with the right attitude 
We need to hear the word and do it. And we need to be in an environment that, that encourages and cultivates us to do that. But it was here that Daniel developed his personal cultural life. He was in prayer three times a day and he didn't care if it cost him his life. Three times a day he'd be on his knees in the presence of God, seeking the face of God. His daily spiritual disciplines were part of his own personal culture. And I say to you, my friends, every one of us need to be persistent and diligent in building a personal culture that is resistant to Babylon where we are. Constantly on the news, through broadcasts, you'll hear it again this weekend, anti-Christian, biblically negative and biblically contradictory points of view, you have to have your own personal culture and make a decision. I believe the Bible. Now, why do you believe the Bible? Because Jesus believed the Bible. And I think anything Jesus believed, I'm willing to believe myself. You've got to develop your own culture of worship, of word, of prayer, of fellowship, of giving, of serving, and being part of a cluster that is walking together and stirring each other to faith and good works. It's exactly where the early church began in a contradictory culture. Now, two other things, and then we're done. Firstly, uh, secondly, live the prophetic word of Jeremiah. What's the prophetic word of Jeremiah? Stick it up on the, on the platform. Put up the prophetic word of Jeremiah. I'll put it there. Okay. That's weird, but that's good. Here we go. Jeremiah prophesied to the exiles at Babylon. He said, you're in exile, but this is what God wants you to do. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. I planted a cherry tree for exactly that reason last year. Thank you, Pastor Raff. It was a really wonderful gift. Plant your cherry tree. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city uh, to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Pray for Melbourne. Set up great businesses here. Let Christians flourish and prosper. Build great homes. Build great businesses. Build great churches in the midst of a contradictory environment. Stand up and say, there is nothing like the power of God at work in a human being and I will flourish right here where I'm planted. And as my city flourishes, so everyone around me will benefit. I will not bow down and wait for the second coming. I will arise and do exploits in Jesus' name. If you're a businessman, do the best you can. And by the way, every Christian should have some kind of a report from the people around which they work to say, these are the best people in my business. They're the ones I can trust the most. They don't let things fall to the ground. They do what they say they will do. They do it the best they possibly can. They, be go, they go beyond just the ordinary to excellence. And one of the reasons that Daniel was honoured, he did everything with excellence 
even in the midst of a demon-worshipping society, and God brought him to prominence, just like he did Joseph in Egypt years before. Point number three, when you cannot compromise, be faithful to the point of death. Be willing to die if that's what it takes. Now, that's kind of almost amusing in Melbourne because no one's likely to kill you yet in this city for being a follower of Jesus. But in Jesus' day, he knew what it would cost. And as a result, when he was doing the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, he concluded the Beatitudes by saying, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, we are going to get increasing persecution because people don't like everything that's written in the Bible. They like different things to be written in the Bible. But because it is God's word, we will honour him even if it means persecution. Let's move on because no one liked that point. There's no amens. I'll give you one last one. Here's my last one. You've got to hold a clear and compelling theology of the end of all things. You have to live in the constant awareness that life is so short. Today, as I'm driving here, everyone on the radio is remembering uh, Barry Humphreys. Barry Humphreys died. Well, you only have to go back a year, it was Shane Warne. Um, Earlier this week, Father Bob Maguire. Whenever anybody like that dies, the first thing that comes out of my mouth is, oh, I hope you knew Jesus. Because you've been applauded, Barry. You've been applauded. Shane, Shane Warne, you've been applauded, mate. You took lots of wickets and you've had a lot of cultural support. But you're about to stand in a place where you will now render an account to the King of Kings. And he's not going to judge you on how many wickets you got. And Barry, he's not going to judge you on how many laughs you got. He's going to ask you very different questions. For the Word of God says it is given unto man once to die and after this comes the judgment. And there is only one approval I need to find and that is in the face of Jesus Christ. Is that really clear to you? Listen to the way Daniel... Oh, I could read you other, but I'll read you this one. The final words of Daniel in, Matthew, in Daniel chapter 12. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. As for you, go your way till the end. You will find rest and then at the end of the days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Are you clear on how short life is and your life is probationary? Do you realise your life is your one opportunity to engage with God as your Father and Jesus as your Saviour? And no matter what else you do, if you miss that, you lived and missed everything because the Statistics on death are remarkably clarified. 
clear. It's actually 100%. Every single one of us will stand in His presence and render an account. Daniel knew it. And as a result, when he faced death in a lion's den, which is probably more terrifying than any of us could possibly imagine, he simply recognized the worst they can do is kill me. Jesus said, fear not them which are able to kill your body but cannot destroy your soul, but rather fear him that is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. I fear God, I fear my wife. Because at the end of the day, there's only one approval I need. It's His. Oh, God raised disciples in this generation that are so clear about whose approval they are seeking. Jesus, I seek yours every hour of every day. I will seek yours. Heavenly Father, I will pursue your approval through Jesus Christ every hour of every day. And it's my prayer that this church will flourish as a contradictory light in the midst of a troubled generation, I declare to you, arise, be very bold, be very courageous, disciple people as often and as best you possibly can because in His sight we stand or fall. Father, I lift my hands in prayer over this generation. I lift my hands in prayer over every man and every woman in this place. I pray for those here today that are under constant pressure in their culture. I pray they will have courage to trust you and stand with you no matter what comes their way. Father, I pray for those who are sitting here today who know they have never fully committed to this kingdom. They've never fully committed to the life of a disciple. And today I pray your spirit would fall upon them, urge them in their heart. It's the day of salvation. It's the day of probation. Engage with Christ. Engage with the kingdom of heaven. If you came today and you'd be honest enough to say, I'm not sure that I've ever committed myself in that way. But God, I want to be. I, I don't want to be swept away. If that's you, I want you to just lift your hand. I want to pray for you right where you are. Not easy to lift your hand in an environment like this because, well, heck, aren't we all on this boat? Well, sometimes we are awakened to the fact, uh, Lord, I need you. It's the way. It takes courage to say, yep, I, I think I've been a bit loose. I think I've a little bit been, been moved by my culture into a place where I just want to compromise more and more. I just don't want to stand out. I don't want to look embarrassed. God's come to you today to say, I want you to stand. I want you to arise on the inside. I want you to be very bold and very, very courageous. Be a Daniel in your generation. Father, I stretch out my hand over those who raised their hand. And I believe you for them. I pray for them in Jesus' name. God, let this church flourish and let your kingdom come in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Make the most out of it. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Encompass Church. If today's message has impacted you and you want to give your life to Jesus, if you need prayer or if you want to get connected to the church, please contact us at office at encompass.org.au. Never miss a moment by following us online. Search for Encompass Church on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.